I am preaching through Galatians right now, and I uh, am in a key text in Galatians. Right now, I am in Galatians chapter 5. We're going to look at Galatians chapter 5, verse 1 to 15, and it's a turning point in the book of Galatians. Even if you're watching me, if you've been paying close attention, you're going to notice I'm making a shift today. I have been using the translation, I don't even think I'm going to let you tell the name of it. I have been using the translation, which is a pretty good translation. And then I started reading through it a couple of weeks ago, and I got curious, how does this translation, since Galatians is talking about freedom, how does this translation deal with the issues of slavery? And I started looking and I thought, I just didn't like how it was dealing with slavery. And I started to look around, and I could have come to, I'm going to use a different translation for some season. I'm going to use the Christian Standard Version. I started trading messages with a few peers of mine, guys who are about my age in ministry, who when I really don't know what I should do, I'll give them a call, say, I stumbled onto something. Have you seen this? What do you think I should do? One of my peers said, Dave, yeah, I'm sorry, I should have told you this earlier. You've stumbled onto something. Maybe I should have said something a little louder. My friend, pastoring a church in Seattle, said, you know what? If you dig into American history, you're going to find there were some Bible translations that were done in the 1700s to the mid-1800s that removed Exodus, a lot of the Old Testament prophets, Romans and Galatians, because they didn't want people who were living in slavery to ever read those passages. I dug and my friend was right. Today we're going to get into Galatians, and I knew it was a real important book because it comes out of the Protestant Reformation. Every movement of Christ around the world in the history of humanity when there's been something like what we talk about a revival, of a revival, of a renewal, of a rediscovery, they spend a chunk of time in Galatians, and Galatians changes them. But it's also a text that some people will say, well, if we're going to try to make the gospel comfortable, if we're going to try to accommodate, we're going to pull this one out because it confronts too many things that are at the heart of what's wrong with our humanity. We're going to look at Galatians 5. It's a turning point today. Now, the thing that we're going to push into hard today, the tail portion of the text I'm going to look at is going to close with the phrase, love your neighbor as you love yourself. And it's going to push against fear. I appreciate what Sage did today as he led us in worship and he came to us and read out of the Psalm 13, talking about God as suffering. Our leaders have been talking about what's going on today and we've talked about how do we work against fear. And simple question, how many of you guys at home think you've got enough toilet paper in Bismarck you can make it two weeks without going to the store? <laughs> okay, I've got about half of you. Yesterday morning, some of you, maybe you're visiting Bismarck, but I think this is happening in about every city in America. Yesterday morning, I was walking my dog, and I saw one of my neighbors 
getting, coming out, going to their car, getting toilet paper, and then I walked by the car, and the car was literally filled with toilet paper. It had become the storage unit for my neighbor's toilet paper. My dark side thought about taking a photo and putting it on Facebook and giving the address of it. Oh, I'm going to stir something up. I shouldn't do that. I'm not going to do that. But fear is driving a lot of things that are happening today. And when we get afraid, we look to try to control things. We start to covet things. And my neighbor did that. I really want you to hear today. When this sermon is over, the closing points that Paul is going to make is love your neighbor as you love yourself. Do that audaciously. God's giving us a gift with this coronavirus for those of us who are faith-driven people who believe Jesus rose from the dead and it changed everything. And no matter what I face in life, even if I am one of the unfortunate people that doesn't live through this pandemic, Jesus' blood has bought my salvation. I have eternal life and I have nothing to fear. And because of that, I will love my neighbor as myself and I will love audaciously. And I'm not going to buy a two-year supply of toilet paper if it's there at Walmart. I'm not going to do it. This is the turning point in Paul's letter that in Galatians 5. And I'm going to kind of give some summaries, just maybe a little bit more because people are visiting, but make sure we understand this. If you read through Paul's letters, there's a typical pattern. He usually opens with a greeting, and his letters are like emails from a pastor, but they're inspired by God. He opens with a greeting. Then he usually has a long theological section where he lays out some very important truths to try to understand who we are in Christ. Then about a Two-thirds of the way into most of his letters, he gets real practical, saying, and do these things, and then he closes with a blessing. That's how he manages it. You'll notice, if you spend time with really good church people, and I hope, well, spend time with really good church leaders, when they face an issue that is going to say, we're going to have to change behavior, they usually don't start with, Here's the behavior we have to change. They usually start with explaining the deepest truths of our faith. What is ultimately true? Sociologists or anthropologists will say you're talking about worldview. What people believe is ultimately true. And when you understand what's ultimately true, that creates your values for how you make decisions. And then it changes how you live. I'm looking at Galatians and a summary of it before I get into the text is, it's a book written to a ch churches in the province of Galatia. If you're reading the book of Acts, that's Acts 13 and 14 is where it happens. It's the city of Derby, Lystra, Iconium, Antioch, and Pisidia. And the basic story is Paul went on his first missionary journey to these cities. He started off in most of these cities going in and trying to find the Jewish synagogue, and he would start teaching about Jesus who rose from the dead. As he did that, it would stir controversy. And he would usually have to leave the synagogue, and once he'd do that, he'd be meeting in homes and he would start speaking to Gentiles and Greeks, and they would become Christians. And as that was happening, miraculous things were happening. People were being healed, demons were being driven out, and people's lives were changing in really radical ways. Then Paul would move on to the next city, and a basic pattern that would happen is as Paul moved on, 
these legalists who were Jewish Christians who had never been able to fully accept freedom in Christ would follow behind him and start telling these churches, you need to add all of these details of Old Testament law. In fact, particularly, you have to be circumcised if you're a man. Well, there is about a 20 to 30 year period of time where the New Testament church is wrestling with this. And historically in Acts 15, we have the Jerusalem conference where the leaders say, we don't have to be circumcised. But you get about a 20, 30 year period of turmoil. And maybe even I can say this today, I've said it before in Revive, if our church issues take us some time to figure it out, remember the New Testament church did that. And if it takes us a few weeks to a few months to figure out what we're supposed to do with coronavirus, be patient with ourselves. God is patient with us. I'm going to ask for you to stand. I'm going to read Galatians chapter 5, verse 1 to 15. For freedom, Christ set us free. Stand firm then, and don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. Take note, I, Paul, am telling you that if you get yourself circumcised, Christ will not benefit you at all. Again, I testify to every man who gets himself circumcised that he is obligated to do the entire law. You who are trying to be justified by the law are alienated from Christ. You have fallen from grace. For we eagerly await through the Spirit by faith the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision accomplishes anything. What matters is faith working through love. You were running well. Who prevented you from mission? being persuaded regarding the truth. This is persuasion that does not come from the one who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole batch of dough. I myself am persuaded in the Lord you will not accept any other view. But whoever it is that is confusing you will pay the penalty. Now, brothers and sisters, if I still preach circumcision, why am I still persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. I wish those who are disturbing you might also let themselves be mutilated. For you were called to be free, brothers and sisters. Only don't use this freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but serve one another through love. For the whole law is fulfilled in one statement, love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out or you will be consumed by one another. Please be seated. We try to give you a summary of what's going on here in this text here. Paul starts out, and it's, it's the turning point. Next week, we're going to start to get into all these practical things. Of Paul's going to say, these are the works of the flesh. This is the work of the Spirit. And he's going to say, and then do these things. This is the point where the, the letter turns. He suddenly reminds them of Jewish history. He tells them the point is freedom in Christ. And once he mentions that, most Jews are going to have a quick memory, and they've been hearing about slavery. They're going to remember the stories of Exodus that they have heard over and over and over and over again about their people being in bondage in Egypt and then going free. They're going to remember that they are a people really who's been dominated by world powers and empires for generations. It was the Babylonians and the Persians and the Greeks, and now it's the Rome. And if they really know their Bible well, they'll know that God told them in Leviticus chapter 25 that they were to practice a year of jubilee where once in everyone's lifetime, everything was forgiven and everyone was free. Paul says, don't submit to a yoke of slavery. 
And if we know yokes, a yoke is what you put on an animal that is a beast of burden. Horses that are going to pull a cart or oxen that are going to plow or carry a yoke. And when he's saying don't be overcome by a yoke of slavery, he's lifting up their human dignity, that they were made in the image. All of us are made in the image of God. And we are not an animal to be exploited. We are more than our physical impulses as our needs. We are someone carrying all the dignity, all the merit, all the work nature of God, that we are not God. And if we choose to submit to circumcision, to submit to a system of religious laws and rules, we start to lose. The first thing that Paul mentions is Christ will be of no value. You could simply be a Jewish proselyte, a follower of the Jewish religion and all the details, and if you become circumcised, you would be obligated to carry all of the details. Then he uses a phrase that I have been wrestling with for all week, what I should say. He says in the translation I read from, you will be alienated from Christ. You will have fallen away from grace. And if you know Christian theology, when you step into this, you step into a big issue that Protestants have been talking about for hundreds of years. Some theologians will call it the idea of the perseverance of the saints. Some will make it simple, say once saved, always saved, that when someone comes to Christ, their sins are forgiven in the past, in the present, and in the future, and God wipes all of their sins clean forever. And it makes a lot of theological sense. But if you read through the New Testament, you keep finding these passages every now and then, which I've just read, which say you have fallen from grace. I'll tell a couple of real practical things. Pastoring is one of these moments where you're trying to read theology and read God's word and then live with people and trying to nurture them. One of my worst pastoral experiences and I think most pastors would agree on this one. Spending time with someone who's in the tail end of their life, who has generally lived a godly, good life, who's gone to church, who's saved, who's been baptized, who has nothing but good fruit behind them at all that I know, and they're laying in a hospital bed knowing that the end is coming, and they're terrified. And they start to repeat the deepest sins that they've kept hidden their whole life, trying to come clean. And I know when I'm sitting there listening to it, I'm like, oh, no, don't you understand? You've been saved. It's, you're saying that salvation is all taken care of. You don't have to worry about this stuff. Be at peace. But on the flip side, have you also been with somebody who is in a repetitive cycle of sin, and every time they're caught, they make a statement about grace, and I'm beating my head going, what's not right here? I think part of that wrestling is why Paul will throw these phrases into his letters every now and then. Make sure you're not alienated from Christ. Make sure you haven't fallen from grace. And what I usually do when the text is too complicated for me to get my brain around I can't put it in a good theological category. 
I go back and read Jesus' parables and see how he dealt with these issues. And I'm going to refer to two that help me sort through this idea. Do the saints always persevere or can we fall from grace? Two jump out to me. One, there's a parable that many of us know about a tax collector and a Pharisee who go to pray. And the Pharisee, a religious leader, lifts up his hands to God and thanks God that he's not like the sinners. And he takes great pride in himself. And he's basically thanking God that he can take pride in himself. The tax collector, on the other hand, the man who's betrayed his people and is making a profit off of political manipulation, is broken before God and says, God, you mercy on me, a sinner. Another story that's also in the Gospel of Luke most of you probably know it as the parable of the prodigal son or the lost son. I've heard a few preachers say it's really a parable of two sons. And if you read it as two sons, you'll notice the lost one comes to his senses and comes back to God, or comes back to his father into God, and comes home begging for forgiveness. The son who took pride in what he's always done right actually is outside the father's house. Here's the point where I'm wrestling with the theological issue, and I'm embarrassed to say this as a pastor. I don't have it figured out. I do know that the most dangerous place to stand before God is to stand before him in pride and arrogance. And if you stand before the Lord in pride and arrogance, you're in a dangerous spot. And when I look at what Paul is dealing with, when Jesus has said, don't be like the Pharisee who lifts himself up, don't be like the brother who's standing outside judging his brother who's come home. And Paul says, and don't be like these religious rule keepers who keep adding law. That's the dangerous place to be. Stay away from that. Live in grace. Love one another. Love audaciously forgive. Because this is what you get to keep forever. You get the patience of the Spirit. So you can wait things out. You get hope of righteousness, knowing that it's not about you. It's what the righteousness of God imparts upon us. You get your faith working itself out in love. And there's a couple of illustrations that Paul gives. And saying this, this is, this is missionaries writing on email, sending out stuff and trying to help people learn. One is, he says, you were running the race well, but someone prevented you from finishing well. I like to run. I'm not the best runner. But I've run a few races before. And something that's in the back of my mind, particularly when I'm running like one of these 5Ks that's just in the neighborhood, I know I'm going to not finish near the top. There's going to be probably 20 to 30% of the runners are going to cross the finish line before me. And I'm watching that guy who's near the front, and maybe I can watch him if it's a three-mile race, I can watch him for maybe a half mile before he's completely out of my sight. But I'm always wondering, what if there's like a teenager along the road that's going to divert him and move the things around, and we're all going to take a wrong path? Because I'm just following the guy in front of me. That's all I'm doing. And Paul is saying, make sure you're not like that person who's diverting the race, who's taking people off the sidetrack 
and causing all this confusion. Stay on the truth path, and he defines it as that's a deceiver. Don't run on that false path. He has a second illustration about bad yeast, about a little leaven can infect all of the dough, and it ruins it. You know, I, I do a little bit of cooking. I don't bake bread. Maybe as I get older, I will at some point. But I know this one. You get the wrong leaven, and it ruins the whole dough. Paul's saying this to the church in Galatian provinces. If you get this leaven in, it's going to ruin you. And then you get this crass missionary candor. Paul is convinced that his perspective will become the predominant view. Truth and time are on his side. The Galatians will come to the right conclusion. He's convinced a severe penalty will be paid by those who are causing the confusion. It's like those that get caught diverting a race. He wants them to never think that he understands Jewish law to get a hearing among the Gentiles. That maybe Paul was being a little bit crafty. And as he went and started preaching to the Gentiles, maybe some will say, well, he just understated it. And he was eventually going to sneak Jewish law in. He did do a bait and switch. And if Paul had done that, if he had baited people into freedom and then looped them into a religious system, he would not be facing this persecution. And he reminds them of the offense of the cross. That the very nature, the story that we tell, and we're going to tell it with our church rhythms in a few weeks, that Jesus walked this earth and he preached the best sermons that have ever been spoken. And he healed the sick and he restored the lame and the blind. And he literally was God on this earth. And then he died for our sins. And he died in a horrific, brutal way. And he rose from the dead. But if we just want to look at that death, for the people of Jesus' day and Paul's day, crosses were not nice symbols to wear out as jewelry. They were not nice symbols to put on church buildings. They were the offense of death. And Paul's saying, how could I offend people in such a way? How could I minimize this? This is not who I am. This is not true. And then he gets remarkably crass. Most preachers would get fired if they sent an email that said this. But he basically says he wishes for those Judaizers, for them to be mutilated. Some translations will say castrated, some will say emasculated. You don't get to be a pastor in most churches and write emails with those type of words. But that's how Paul takes it. That's serious to add, add all of this law, all this legalism. But he comes back to the last verses I'm going to talk about, the call to love. We are to love one another as we love ourselves. And Paul uses the phrase brothers and sisters. And a couple of times I've pointed this out as we've been going through Galatians. Paul loves these churches. He's intimate with them. He uses intimate language. He uses family-like language. But a couple of times he gets mad and calls them foolish. Idiots, it's literally the way our parents sometimes talk to me. I remember, I hate to admit this, you'll see my dad eventually, he'll show up here. I remember when my dad would get frustrated and say, dumb kid. I know that he didn't always think I was a dumb kid now that I'm old, but I remember that kids wake up, pay attention. And when we're intimate with one another, sometimes these type of things come out. And then Paul will later call them family brothers and sisters, 
And now it is, this family life is messy, it's intimate, but the call is painful, and you need to love one another as you love yourself. Practical, I'm going to keep saying this, we really don't know what the next few weeks to months are going to bring. But I do want to encourage you, when you go to Walmart, and if you just got there, and oh boy, there's more toilet paper than you've ever seen in the last week. Remember, there's people in this city who live paycheck by paycheck, and you might be able to buy a supply, but that means somebody else does. When people are getting nervous, when they're throwing out accusations, remember that the one they're throwing an accusation at shares the same dignity that you did. They were made in the image of God. Every crisis of humanity has seen these awful darker sides of humanity and it will come out from toilet paper hoarding to unkind words. Love your neighbor as yourself. I mentioned this in a couple blog, a blog I've done. I'm really hoping, and I think it might be reasonable, from what I'm reading, probably within the next year, every one of us will probably be exposed to coronavirus. Most of us will get a little bit sick with it. This will probably be something that we shrug our shoulders at and exaggerate when we tell stories to our grandchildren about what we lived through in 2020. But I've got a couple of friends in Italy, and their stories aren't that pleasant right now to read here. And we might be in a season in a few weeks where those of us whose health is the most vulnerable come down. And we might, a few of us, might be afraid to go step into their home or step into their hospital bed and hold their hand and pray. But if we love our neighbors, we love ourselves, we're going to do that. Though I'm going to avoid shaking some of your hands today. We're going to have a big call in the next few weeks to push against fear, to pr promote policies that lead to health, but not participate in ones that are ugly and hurtful. And to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. Paul tells us this freedom, it's not an opportunity to be without morals. In fact, it's an opportunity to love abundantly. The best of the world ethics is to love our neighbors as ourselves. And his closing statement is tells us basically, once you start bickering with one another, you're going to be devoured by. And if you're following social media on coronavirus, you can see people being devoured by it. Don't fall for it. Let me ask for you to stand. I want to read the benediction and then have one more song and we'll be done. God bless your week. I'm going to be reading Galatians chapter 1, verse 3 to 5 from the New Living Translation. May God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. Jesus gave his life for our sins, just as God our Father planned in order to rescue us from this evil world in which we all live. All glory to God.